In this episode, I want to discuss why any hope we have in our eternal destiny hinges on God's knowledge and sovereignty over the future. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onward in the faith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. This may be news for some, but there is a belief within Christianity that God doesn't actually know the future. This can take on a few different variations. Some might say that God is completely ignorant of the future, that he is learning everything about what's going to happen just like we are. There are others who would say that God knows everything that can be known about the future, except for the choices that we as human beings are going to make. And so God kind of knows a broad idea of how things are going to turn out, but he doesn't know specifically what we're going to do and whether those choices are going to have an impact on the plans that he originally had. Now, within classic Christianity, that might sound weird and maybe even blasphemous. And it's important for us to ask ourselves, why would this belief come around in the first place? And ultimately, this boils down to people trying to balance our understanding of free will alongside an all-knowing God. And I'll explain why people would find a need to explain God in such a way in a moment. But first, I want to kind of start this discussion off by talking about why our ideas and our beliefs have consequences. So if you think about a gear in a series of other gears, if you've ever gone to like a science museum or had one of those kid toys where you've got a series of gears that you can place around, you know that it's important for each gear to not only fit correctly, but also try spinning in the correct direction. Because when one gear is not spinning in the right way, the entire system shuts down. Or you could think about it like a set of tires on a vehicle. If all the tires are trying to spin in the same direction, fantastic. But if you have one tire that's not, then you're going to have issues because your vehicle can't go forward when that happens. And I bring that up because when we take a single idea and we just isolate it, almost any idea can sound good. And we may not even notice a problem with one particular belief. The problem comes when we realize that our every belief that we hold is like that gear or like that tire, meaning that every belief we have needs to be spinning in the correct direction, needs to be working within the system of other beliefs that we have. And if you like $10 words, then we call this systematic theology, which is simply saying that everything we believe about God, about man, about the Bible, all of it needs to make sense within the bigger system of all of our beliefs together. So to just break that down and make it very simple, what that basically means is that everything we believe needs to be consistent. It all needs to work together. And when I talk about systematic theology or having a consistent theology, if you haven't listened to it yet, I do have an episode that talks about what is theology and do Christians need it. And I'll link that down in the show notes. But basically, I point out that theology isn't this high-minded ivory tower sort of thing. It's a very practical way that we live our lives because theology really looks at what do I believe about God? What do I believe about people and myself? And how does that impact how I live my life? And so with that understanding, it becomes clear that what we believe about God and humanity needs to work together. And so as we as human beings, but also as followers of Jesus Christ, as we are consistently evaluating our beliefs and making sure that what we believe about God or salvation or sin or our role as parents or spouses, as we're trying to evaluate all of those things together, we want them to all make sense. We want them to be consistent. We don't want to be hypocritical or complete opposite when it comes to one belief versus another. And so with that, we want to make sure that we are addressing and dealing with certain beliefs we have that don't line up. Even if those beliefs sound good on their own, and even if they make sense on their own, when we plug them into our bigger belief system and make it fit alongside everything else within our worldview, we want to make sure that everything is moving in the same direction, that there's no contradictions in the things that we believe. And, you know, that's why we 
don't want to read a Bible verse on its own. We want to read Bible verses within the context that they take place in. It's why we want to consider how one belief about something impacts our other beliefs. And so ultimately, when it comes to desiring to be consistent with our theology, it really just comes down to wanting to know God more instead of just having the right answers. Because we can come up with answers for all kinds of different questions we have, and on their own, those answers might comfort us and make us feel better. But if they aren't lining up totally with who God is, then we need to abandon those bad beliefs rather than just cling to them because they might be comforting. So, all that being said, let's get back to the future and how God deals with it. So, with this idea of God not knowing the future, the main idea here is that God knows what should happen, but he doesn't know if it's actually going to take place. So, very simply, if I were to drop a ball, in that instant, God would know that that ball is going to hit the ground because that is how physics works. That's just how he's designed things, that without intervention, that ball is going to hit the ground. But what God doesn't know is if I'm going to catch the ball or if someone else is going to catch the ball and stop it from hitting the ground. So in other words, God's knowledge of the future changes and and what he experiences and what he knows changes based on our actions and how we alter the plans that he has. And now, again, that might sound really weird and bothersome, and you may even wonder, well, why should I even bother listening to this episode in the first place? Well, because this actually impacts us, even if we believe that God is sovereign over the future, even if we believe he is all-knowing. And that is because there is a specific motivation behind this belief system, and that is that as people have thought about what free will means and what it means for us as human beings to to be free will agents, people started realizing that if God truly knows our future, and even worse, if God has declared the future, if he is sovereign over it, if he has truly said, here's what the future is going to look like and it's going to happen, then do we as human beings really have free will? Because if we really stop and think about it, if I am faced with a choice, but God already knows what choice I'm going to make, then is my future really free and up to me, or is it just determined and I'm just along for the ride? Or worse, if it comes to me making a decision and God has already said, here's the decision that Ray is going to make, then am I just a robot who's been programmed to make a series of decisions because I don't truly have an option? I've been given the illusion of an option. I may think I'm making a decision, but really, because God has said what's going to happen— what I do or don't do doesn't really matter because it's going to happen and my choice isn't a choice at all. And now this really matters in a very serious sense because if God is telling us to choose Christ, to choose to repent of our sins, to hate it, to ask Christ to save us, but if God already knows we will or we won't, one, what's the point of evangelism, right? Why tell people about Christ? If God has said they're going to get saved, it doesn't matter what I do. And also, my decision for Christ wasn't really my decision. It was just me doing what I was programmed to do. And so those people who believe this about God, who try to explain it away, would say that, well, God can't possibly know the future because that takes away our free agency. It takes away our free will. And what they would go further to say is that the idea that God could possibly be sovereign over the future, that he could truly know what's going to happen without a doubt— including knowing our actions, they would say that that's actually from Greek philosophy, and it's it's actually a perversion of the Bible and of theology. In other words, they would say that the idea that God knows the future, that he is sovereign, that he is all-knowing, is actually not biblical at all. And now, what this belief is called, again, another $10 word, this is called open theism. And where it basically gets his name is that the future is open, not closed. In other words, what's going to happen is not set in stone. It can change. It can go completely different directions. God has what he thinks will happen and what he suspects will happen and what he even desires to happen. But we as human beings can do things and make decisions that will mess that up and possibly even completely change his mind on what he was going to do in the first place. And 
there's actually biblical support for this. So we can see in Genesis chapter 22, verses 10 through 12, that God doesn't seem to know everything. So this is when God calls Abraham to take his son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And it says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so that last little bit is really important, and that's one of the key evidences that people will bring to this idea of open theism, or the idea that God doesn't know everything. He doesn't know what will happen, because it says, for now I know that you fear God. In other words, God didn't know if Abraham would or wouldn't be willing to sacrifice his son. And in a way, he didn't even know if he feared God. It wasn't until that moment that Abraham took the dagger, laid his son on the altar, and was prepared to slay his son that God realized, oh, Abraham does fear me. He does love me. He is going to obey. Now I know. Again, they would say that this makes the most sense, not if God is all-knowing and is therefore lying to Abraham. It only makes sense if God went from a state of not knowing what Abraham would do to finally knowing what he would do. We also see that God is willing to change his mind based on the decisions we make. Because like I said, they will say that God has his desires for the future. He has plans that he's going to do, but he doesn't know what we as human beings are going to choose. And so his plans can be altered based on the things that we do. And we see this in Jonah. So Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is a very wicked city. And Jonah kind of drags his heels but still decides to finally obey, goes into the city and basically calls them to repentance and tells them of the coming destruction as judgment for their sinfulness. And we pick this up in Jonah 3.10, and it says, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Once again, we see God had a plan. He was going to bring, as it says, calamity, judgment, destruction to the city of Nineveh. But then when he saw their deeds, he didn't do it. So God had a plan, and he may have even not thought that Nineveh would repent. He may have been in line with Jonah, but God still wanted to call Nineveh to repentance to maybe give them the opportunity to save themselves, to turn away from sin. And so God had a plan. He was going with option A, but because Nineveh did something that maybe God didn't even expect, he relented. He stopped. He changed his mind on what he was planning to do, again, based on human decisions. And we can also see that God is not in control of the future. This idea that God is sovereign, that he is ruler, that what he says will happen, we can see in the Bible where we can argue that, no, that's not the case. And we can get this from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I won't read it, but we can read something similar in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which talks about the broad gate and the narrow gate and how a lot of people are going to go through that broad gate. Very few people will find the way to true salvation in Jesus Christ. And these two work together to basically say that, you know, in 1 Timothy, we see that it is God's desire, it is his will for all men to be saved, for every human being to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, a reality of their sinfulness and their inability to save themselves. And it's God's desire for every single person to turn to Christ to call out, to ask him to save them from their sin, to, to take the place for them under the wrath of God. That is what God wants. But in Matthew, we see that even though that's what God wants, that's not what's going to happen. In fact, it's not even just that a few people are going to get lost in the shuffle. It's that a lot of people, most people, the majority of humanity is going to go through that broad gate, that gate towards destruction in hell. And instead, despite God's desire, despite his will, very few are going to find it. Very few are going to taste genuine redemption through Jesus Christ. Again, if God wanted it, it would happen. But because it's up to human decisions, it doesn't. 
And finally, we can see that God's plans keep getting foiled all throughout the Old Testament with Israel because he keeps making covenants that Israel then fails at, and then God seems to have to make a new covenant. And so it seems that God had a plan that he set up with Adam and Eve, and then Abraham, and on and on we see God making these covenants, these these oaths, these promises with Israel, but then they fail, and so God has to basically draw up a new contract and try again, trying to keep Israel within his good graces and kind of within his satisfaction. And so that's kind of a lot to get to, but I hope that that gives us at least a kind of basic foundation for understanding this idea of open theism. Not just what it is, but why there's a good reason to believe it. Because, again, as we see with all of these, these aren't people necessarily being foolish and just ignoring what the Bible says. They can actually point to areas in the Bible that would show that God doesn't seem to know the future. He seems to change based on human action. And that seems to fit with our understanding of what human free will is and that we are free to make any decision. We aren't controlled. We aren't required to do something. We aren't programmed. And so therefore, how do we match this God who is everywhere and who seems to know everything with human free will? Ultimately, what seems to make the most sense if we want God to match our understanding of free will is that God just doesn't know what we're going to do. He has hopes, he has desires, he may have an ideal plan, but we as human beings can mess it all up, just like Israel did over and over with the covenants, just like God desires us all to be saved, but very few will be. God had to turn from his plans with Nineveh, and God had to learn whether or not Abraham truly feared him. So that's open theism. That's why people believe it, and I hope I've been fair in showing that there is merit to it. But there are some very serious issues that we run into with this one. And just like I couldn't cover every aspect of open theism, I can't really devote hours and hours to digging into all the issues with it. So I want to just talk about a few kind of bigger problems that this belief system runs into and how believing in it actually creates even more issues. So the first one is that open theism thinks that God experiences time like we do. Because as human beings, we are bound by time. We can experience the past as a memory. We can experience the present as it's currently happening. And we experience the future as a list of assumptions or hopes. In other words, once the past is gone, it's gone. Whatever is true about it only exists in our minds, and we really hope that we remember it. Whatever is coming in the future is unknown. We can make plans, we can make some good forecasting, but ultimately we don't know with absolute certainty what the future holds. The only thing we can actively experience is what's happening in this exact moment. And what's happening in this moment is going to be a memory in the next moment. And on and on that's going to go. But here's the thing. God cannot possibly be bound by time like we are. In other words, God doesn't have to experience existence from one moment to the next. And how I'm going to explain this might seem a little difficult or weird. If you do better with reading than listening, I explain this in the article version of this episode, which you can find down in the show notes. But even if it doesn't click, I hope you'll stick around because I think that this discussion will still get pretty good, even if this one might be a little bit sticky to get through. So, why I believe that God is not bound by time and why it honestly makes no sense that God would be bound by time is when we understand what existence actually is. So in order for anything to exist, it requires three things. And this is true throughout all of the universe. For anything to exist, it requires three things. First, it requires matter. For something to exist, it needs to be made out of something. It also requires space. And by that I mean, for something to exist, it needs to be somewhere. It can be right here, it can be three feet to the left, but anything that exists occupies a certain amount of space in a certain location. And then finally, everything requires time in order to exist, because what time does is it marks us going from one moment to the next. So the reason that we know we exist is because we were here one moment ago, and now we're here this moment as well. But we stop existing when we are no longer 
present for the next moment. And so we know that when we think of anything, whether it's a clock or a horse or a cloud, everything has to obey these three rules. They have to be made of something. They have to exist in a space and they have to exist from one moment to another moment. But here's the thing. Genesis 1-1 proves that God is not bound by those same requirements. In other words, God does not require matter to exist. He doesn't require a space to exist in, nor is he required to be bound by time. Now, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we want to look very closely at what this is actually showing us based on what we know about existence. So, it talks about God created matter, the earth. He created space, the heavens. But he also created time because it says in the beginning. What that means is that there was a time where there was not time and then God pressed the start button and time began. Time is not an eternal thing. Moments have not just always existed. And now we can't understand that because we as human beings have always experienced existing and as a material creature. We've always understood existence as occupying a certain space. I cannot both exist where I am now in Iowa as well as in Paris and then over in Moscow and then on the moon. I can't exist in those places at the same time. And also, we just don't know what it's like to not be bound by time, to not experience time, to not live as engaging with the world from one moment to the next, never able to go further forward or rewind and go back. But God, in order to create these things, had to exist before they were created. And so by that, I mean that we know that God does not have a physical body. And in fact, the Bible says that God is spirit. But we know that God doesn't have a physical body because he existed before physical was a thing. We know that God doesn't have to occupy just a single space like we do because God existed before anything was bound to exist within a certain location in a space. And because we know that, we also know that God cannot experience time like we do because God has existed before time began. And again, it's impossible for us to explain or even understand that kind of existence that is so different from our own, which honestly should cause us to just glorify God even more because he is not just a super version of us. He is God. But as I said, my article discusses this even more. But to put this all in summary, what I believe this means about God, and I could be completely wrong, of course, because I'm a finite being trying to explain the infinite, but I believe this means that God experiences all events throughout human history, the human present, and the human future, in a way he experiences them all at once. So rather than experiencing moment by moment Abraham going up to sacrifice his son, or whether or not Nineveh would repent, if God's not bound by time, then what's much more likely is that God experiences all of human time, kind of like one of those history charts from grade school, where you have certain things that happened at certain dates throughout history. And God, rather than having to experience each date at once, experiences them all at the same time. So while God is present and seeing us right now, he is also seeing the flood and he's also seeing what's happening 50 years from now. God can experience and engage with all of them at once because God's just not bound by them like we are. So now why does this matter? What's with the the big philosophical discussion on time and space and matter. Well, if this is true, if God is not bound to time like we are, then this idea of open theism, that God doesn't know the future, what this ultimately does is it lowers the majesty of God and who he is. It drags him down to our level. It makes him more understandable and relatable to us. But what happens is that when we make God more like us, more easy for us to grasp and understand and comprehend and accept— we make him less of who he truly is. We, we drag him down. We diminish him. We weaken the reality of God in order to make ourselves feel a bit better because we've been able to put him in a box and, and understand him in this year where we just think we have all the knowledge and all the understanding. We're uncomfortable not being able to understand something, not being able to explain something. And so we pull God down until he's just at a point where he's still God but we can understand everything about him and explain it and be comfortable about it. Now, another problem comes 
when we think about how God has dealt with prophecy throughout the Bible. So in my last episode, in, we talked about James 4, verses 13 through 15, where we discussed how assuming anything about the future is sinful for us. Because what that does is it proves our arrogance and proves how prideful we are because we are declaring what the future will be. Which is why James says that instead we should say, either with our mouths or in our hearts, that we realize that it's the Lord's will whether we go to this place or do this or that. Now here's the problem. With open theism, God is doing that very same thing that we are condemned for. In other words, it makes God like us because God cannot, with absolute certainty, declare the future. He can forecast it. He can say, well, here's what's probably going to happen based on all these events. But God doesn't know with absolute certainty what's going to happen. And again, on its own, maybe that belief can make sense and it can help us feel better about our free will. But that runs into serious issues when it comes to all these prophecies and these promises that God has made throughout the Bible. Now let's look at another verse. So in Numbers twenty three nineteen, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So again, when we make God like us, it comforts us, but it also degrades who he is. It brings him down. And so if God doesn't truly know the future with 100% certainty, and if God has not declared what the future is going to be, rather than just looking at a crystal ball and saying, oh, well, here's what I've seen is going to happen. But if God has not actually declared it, then here's some issues we run into. First of all, prophecy and promises that God has made are based in arrogance because God has said, here's what's going to happen, but he doesn't know if it really will. God has said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, but he didn't know with certainty that he was actually going to do it. Instead, he spoke with arrogance and pride, saying that he could say something about the future without any 100% clear, absolute guarantee that that's what was going to take place. So just as James condemns us for when we say, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and we're arrogant because we think that we have some control over the future, God would also have to be arrogant to say, here's what the future is going to be without him actually knowing that that's true. It would make God a liar, which that verse in Numbers just said, God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. In other words, God is perfect, but this idea of open theism doesn't allow him to be. So when Numbers says, has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? If open theism is true, we have to shrug our shoulders and say, boy, I hope not, because we have no guarantee that because God has said something, he's going to do it. There could be a domino effect of events that happen because of human decisions that make God incapable of doing what he set out to do. And so ultimately that makes us ask, if God doesn't truly know the future, if he is just making hunches and assumptions then is God just making a really educated guess without a guarantee? And if he is, does that really just make God a glorified weatherman who makes predictions instead of the almighty God of the universe who declares things and makes them so because he has declared them? Well, Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11 answer this for us. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. So, there's a lot here that just flies in the face of this idea of open theism. First of all, in the beginning, God talks about how he is God. There is no one like him. In other words, God's not like a human being, as we saw with that Numbers verse. God's not just a super version of us. He is beyond anything human because he's not. We are a creation of him. We're not just a lesser version of him. God is God. He is beyond us. And we are just this little, tiny, insignificant bunch of creatures on this little, tiny ball of rock off to the side of a galaxy filled with hundreds of billions of other galaxies. God's not just a super version of us. And here it says that God isn't just rolling with the punches. Verse 10 says that God declares the end from the beginning. 
He says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is absolute in what he sets out to do. God isn't just making it up as he goes. He's not just a reactionary being trying to make the best of a bad situation. What God has planned, God is going to do. No one can thwart his plans. And he concludes here with, Truly I have spoken, and truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. We praise God that he can say that and say it with certainty and authority. Because as we're going to discuss, everything about our lives, everything about our hope relies in the truth that when God says he's going to do it, he is going to do it. And if you want to read even more, you can read about what God says about the future and his sovereignty over it in Jeremiah 29.10 or in Revelation 22 verses 3 through 5. But to sum up this point, if God is going to make these absolute claims about the future without having any true knowledge that human beings are going to make certain decisions or that we're not going to do things that are going to get in his way, then God would be speaking in arrogance. He would be making promises that he can't keep. And therefore, God would be a liar because God would say, here's what's going to happen. And it would not. If we can foil God's plans, then we can make God a liar. We have the power with our own understanding of free will to foil everything that the God of the universe has had planned simply because we in our weak and infantile minds, messed it all up. And now let's talk about what may be the most terrifying part of open theism. So if we are just explaining God as someone who is looking at a crystal ball and seeing what's probably going to happen, or seeing a version of the future, then what that means is that God is always learning. Moment by moment, he is seeing human beings make decisions he didn't know that they would make. And if something is always learning, then it's always changing. Because what that means is that God is different moment to moment, just like we are. Because every moment that we exist, we are very slowly, very gradually changing. We are becoming a different person every moment because we are taking in new information, we are processing it, and we are dealing with it in ways that change who we are. Now, moment by moment, we may not realize how much of a difference it's making, but if you think of who you are now compared to who you were 10 years ago, or as a child, you're a very different person. And it's all because your life experiences have guided you in such a way that who you are today is a result of everything that happened for every moment before then. And if God is always learning, then God likewise is different today than he was yesterday and the day before. And tomorrow, God will continue to be different because he's going to continue to learn new things based on our decisions every single moment. And that is very dangerous ground to tread on because that means that God goes from not knowing something to knowing it because God's knowledge is imperfect. God is constantly acquiring new knowledge. He is gaining things that he never once had before. He is gaining understanding and wisdom and he is learning based on the things that we are doing. You know, if you see the covenants that he made with Israel, God was constantly changing because he was learning the different things that he needed to do to get Israel on board with his will and to be his chosen nation and to really give up their idolatry and follow him. God was constantly having to change because plan number one didn't work. Let's try plan number two. Let's try plan number three. And that would explain why God turned them into a nation and then sent judges and then gave them a king. This would explain why God seems to act so differently is because he is constantly learning and changing and adapting what he's doing based on human decisions. And in a way, that would make God like our modern understanding of science or medicine, because the things that we thought were true centuries ago, we are realizing today are not so much. And so whatever your thoughts on science or medicine in terms of, you know, the capitalistic way they're set up today... I think we can all agree that what we just understand about the universe, about nature, about the human body, what we understand today is leagues ahead of what we knew centuries ago, which if we're just going to simplify it, we would say that our understanding of science and medicine and health today is better than it was back then. So likewise, God, because he has a better understanding of human nature, of human decisions, of human actions, God today is better than the God centuries ago or thousands of years ago. 
because that God back then didn't have all the knowledge and understanding that today's God does. Again, God is imperfect. That's the only thing that we can conclude is that God has never been all and complete and whole. He, just like us, is always growing, always developing, and always improving based on what he learns about the universe that he's created, or more specifically, the people in it that are making decisions that he has no knowledge of. Now, all of that might seem bad, but there is a much deeper issue here, and that is that our very salvation depends on that understanding of God being 100% false. If open theism is true, if it's true that God doesn't know the future, that he doesn't know what's going to happen, that everything he does is based on our actions, and overall, if God is constantly growing and changing, we may not actually be as safe as we think we are from his judgment and wrath. Now, what I want to do is I want to just read a series of verses that we are all familiar with and that we all find great hope in, and then I want to talk about the one thing they all have in common. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, we're saved by faith, and nothing else saves us. It's not our works, it's just a gift of God. Romans 10, 13, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, our salvation is based purely on us crying out to Christ because we realize that we can find no salvation apart from him. Romans eleven twenty nine, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what God gives, what God has called us to, salvation itself are irrevocable. They cannot be taken away. John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus himself is the only path to the Father. Forgiveness for sins, freedom from God's wrath, a restored relationship with the Father can only be found through the person of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he made on the cross, the payment he paid on our behalf, and our faith in him. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So whenever we wonder, can we lose our salvation, here we have our promise from Christ that those that God gives to Jesus Christ, those whom he saves, Christ will never cast out. No matter what we do, no matter how much we screw up, no matter how wretched we are, Christ will not cast us out. And then John eight thirty six. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So there Christ is talking about the absolute power and authority he has over our eternal destiny. If he sets us free, we are free. There is no doubt about it. Now, I said that these would all have something in common. And the big commonality here is that our salvation and our eternal security depends on all these verses being true. All these statements made by Christ or through Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we place our entire hope on all these being true and accurate and God holding to them. But here's the problem. If God is changing, then as he acquires new knowledge, we have zero guarantee that our salvation requirements might change. We have no reason to believe that when Christ said that we were secure in him, that we will be free indeed. We have no guarantee that in the past 2,000 years, God hasn't learned something new or changed and developed in such a way that that is no longer true and accurate. Because if God can change one thing about himself, even if it's just his knowledge about what we as human beings will do, if he can change one thing, he can change absolutely everything. Because that would make him just like human beings, where we who are bound by time grow and develop and change based on what happens from one moment to the next. And I, I want to make this incredibly clear about why this is so important for us to realize. If God doesn't know the future, we have no hope of salvation. We have no hope of being freed from our bonds to sin and escaping the wrath of God and getting to spend an eternity sin-free, sorrow-free with our God, enjoying Jesus Christ. We have no guarantee that those things are true if God is not not just knowledgeable about the future, but sovereign, and that the things that he says will happen are going to happen. The promises that he makes are guaranteed. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what we think, what God has said will come to pass because we as human beings cannot stop it. 
if it's not true that God will do everything that he sets out to do, then we have no hope that he can do anything at all. We can't trust God to save us. We can't trust Christ to redeem us any more than we can trust ourselves to save us because that makes God weak. It makes Christ incapable. It makes us depend not on the absolute power and majesty and sovereignty of God. It makes us just hope that God isn't going to have a bad day or that we aren't going to screw up so much that he's just going to flip a switch, turn around and say, you know what? Never mind. We're just going to go back to Noah and just hit the reset button, start again. You all can just rot because that's what you deserve. Because we do deserve it. We don't do anything to earn salvation. We can't do anything to please God. We have to just trust and find our hope in the fact that it was Christ who did the work on our part, that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that he put in us that we are constantly changing and growing and becoming more like Christ. We have to trust that all these things are true because God is who he says he is. He is the unchangeable one. Who he is today is who he was yesterday and will always be. We have to rely on that, but we can't if we are trying to force God to fit with our understanding of free will. If we are bringing God down to our level because we are uncomfortable with the idea that what we think is right and true isn't. And so ultimately, what I hope this episode has shown is that open theism, in the end, just creates more problems than it solves. It's certainly comforting to be able to hold to our understanding of absolute free will, that we can do anything we want without any influence. But in order to hold that idea, we have to force God to line up with what we believe. And in the beginning of this episode, I talked about how critical it is for us to be consistent with our beliefs, that every belief we have needs to fit into that system of gears, all turning in the correct directions in order to work together to function properly. And the reason that I brought that up is that we have our understanding of free will. We have our understanding of how God interacts with the future and things like that. But when we take this one belief that makes us feel better about free will, that belief changes everything else that we have to believe. If we are going to believe that God doesn't know what decisions we're going to make, then we have to believe everything else we know about God is different because God is not who we think he is. If God can change, if God can have his plans messed up or altered because of us, then everything we understand about God is suddenly out the window. And we have to create a new understanding of God and salvation and hope and redemption in the future and prophecy and promises and all of that. Everything that we know about God has to be completely altered based on this one single belief that God would not dare infringe upon our free will. And further adding to that problem is that the Bible talks about God as being sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful. And so we have to completely change what we understand about what all of that means. And when we do that, we then add the reality that God could add new requirements to salvation, that he could one day decide, oh, I guess Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough because I only punished him for this amount of sins and the world has sinned even more. And now I, I have to find some other way to pour out my wrath on something other than these people who deserve it. Or we just have to, that God doesn't just give up, crumple us up like a, a bad piece of paper and just toss us in the trash and try again with a completely new creation. And so if we hold the one belief that God wouldn't tread upon our free will, then we can only conclude that God is imperfect and he's continually improving, just like our understanding of health and science. And because he's always changing, we have no guarantee or even hope that the Bible that thing that we trust in as our highest source of truth, we have no guarantee that it is up to date with his current will, his current desires, and his current requirements for salvation. And so again, consistency in our beliefs is important. There's a reason that people hold to open theism. They want their understanding of free will to line up with the God that we see in the Bible. And to a degree, to a large degree, they don't line up. And it can be upsetting. It can be bothersome because it challenges the very thing we believe about ourselves. And so when that happens, we as human beings, if we want to be consistent, we have to make a choice. And maybe this is a choice that a lot of people didn't realize they need to make. If we want to hold to our understanding of free will, then we have to ask ourselves, if God knows my decisions, if God has already determined what the future is going to be, do I really have free will? Do I need to rethink what free will means? 
to where even if you entered it into this episode and you survived this long and you thought, oh yeah, that open theism thing is nonsense, maybe you also need to ask yourself, does your understanding of God's sovereignty line up with your understanding of free will? A lot of open theism begins with, here's what I understand about free will. How do I match that with God? But maybe this is the time to realize that here's what I understand about God. Does that agree with what I believe about free will? And as we consider that, we have two choices to make. We can bring God down to a comfortable level, which requires us to change God, to alter who he is and change and reinterpret the things that he has said and how he has said them. We can do that. We can make God come down to line up with a belief we want to hold, or we can let God be who he is and reevaluate our own beliefs. Do we need to change our beliefs? Do we need to just throw them out the window because we realize that they are a gear that isn't spinning in the right direction? Do we need to just modify them slightly? Do we need to revisit a certain belief, whether it's about free will or anything? Do we need to modify a certain belief in order to make sure that it lines up smoothly with everything else we believe? Or is it one of those things that because we are finite human beings, maybe both are right and we just don't understand how? And maybe we need to hold our belief in God and our current belief in a sort of tense state where they seem to conflict. We know they can't both be right, but somehow they have to be. But one thing that we have to know is that we cannot change who God is. We cannot alter him and modify his nature to make him into something he's not. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there are some that want to choose to make God what he isn't. They want to create a God, they want to create a Christ, and they want to create a Holy Spirit, none of whom we see in the actual Bible. Instead, what we need to do is start with who is God, and then make sure that every single belief we have falls in line under that. That if we have a belief in God and a personal belief about ourselves or about the world or about society or culture or whatever, when we have our belief in God in the Bible and it conflicts and maybe even contradicts another belief, one of those needs to change. And as we've seen with this idea of open theism, Hebrews 13.8, which says that Christ never changes, he's always the same, that doesn't make sense if he is in fact always changing and learning and growing based on our belief of free will. So if you take nothing else away from this, if the idea of free will never entered your mind and you're ending this and you're not sold on open theism and you're, you know, your beliefs haven't changed, there's still something to, to gain from this. And that is that we as followers of Christ need to always remember our greatest desire. And that is to be faithful to the truth of God and what he's revealed to us. A lot of times that can make us uncomfortable. As I've shown with free will, it can it can be mind-blowing to try to understand how can God know my plans and yet I'm still responsible for them? How, how can God hold me accountable for what he already knows I'm going to do? That can cause a lot of sleepless nights. That can cause us to abandon the faith or find a new reason to dig into God's word and understand truth. But sometimes there's things that are just impossible to comprehend. My discussion on how God exists outside of time, I have no idea how accurate that is. I have no doubt that I'm going to get to heaven and God's just going to shake his head and say, Ray, oh, you messed that up so bad. Because I'm a finite being trying to understand the infinite, just like we all are. But one thing I know is that God has to be who he is. If God created matter, he has to be outside of requiring that to exist. He created space for things to live in. Again, he has to be beyond that and above that. And God created time which it only makes sense that God then experiences time differently and really not at all, which would honestly explain why God's not just a fortune teller, but why God can know the future, why he can declare what it's going to be, because God is experiencing it in a way that we just can't comprehend based on how weak and limited we actually are. And again, it's frustrating and it challenges our pride and it makes us want to come up with some kind of answer to make ourselves feel better. But instead, we can just rejoice that God is who he is. We can read Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, and just be in awe of God. Because it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we get to worship a God who is sovereign, who is true, who is powerful, 
he is so far beyond us. And yet he still chose to do everything that he did. Because from Genesis 1, God knew that we would fall. He knew that he would send his son to be slaughtered by the very creation he came to save. Those, those people who he was sustaining their breath, allowing their cells to function, allowing their brains to keep firing electrical pulses. God allowed all this to happen because it was part of his plan. And God always knew that he would do this because Christ's punishment would be able to pay for our crimes against him. Christ would be able to live a perfect life and go to the cross and be slaughtered and not just die, but have every sin that we've ever committed, the, the punishment and the wrath that we deserve. He, God knew that he would pour all that out on his son and that because he did that, there would be no wrath left for us. There would be no judgment left for us, that we would be free from sin because Christ paid our debt. God has always had that plan from the very beginning. From the word go, God knew that this is where all of human history was going to lead. It was going to lead to that beautiful and brutal moment on the cross. That wasn't just God's plan C. That wasn't God's emergency solution. That's what God had always planned. No matter what Abraham did, no matter what Adam and Eve did, David, Jeremiah, anyone in Israel, anyone in the world, no one was going to do anything to stop God's plans because what he purposes to do, what he says is going to happen will happen. And that as human beings can be difficult for us. It can be hard to understand where we fit into this overwhelming power and majesty of God. And as we walk away from this and as maybe some of you are challenged by it, I think that ultimately rather than being overwhelmed or frustrated or angry, we can find comfort because there is, there's great comfort in knowing that our eternal destiny is in the hands of a good and powerful and all-knowing God, a God whose plans for the future aren't just set in stone, but just like him, all those plans are perfect.